Well, it's uh, great to be with you all today. Thank you for joining us. As you uh, take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 12, I feel like I have some explaining to do. First of all, we uh, celebrate Valentine's Day tomorrow and I'm wearing the wrong color. So I'm sorry about that. But that's not really what I have explaining to do about. We are in, uh, going to be reading in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and you who are extra astute will realize that last week we covered 1-1, and so what are we doing uh, now? But I have reasons for doing this. I hope they will be made clear soon. You have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 12. I want to read for us verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, and at that time the Canaanites were still in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we get to join together on a Sunday morning. We have a time in our week where we can set aside the other things in life that crowd for our attention, for our time and our effort. We get to set those things aside for uh, some moments and, and be together with your word open before us. We get to fellowship with one another. We get to sing to you. We get to pray together. and We get to hear from your word. And Father, we pray as we have your word open this morning and as we're discussing this great book of Genesis, pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Even now during this time that you would be ministering to us, that you would speak and that we would be changed. Father, I pray that you would help us not to be distracted this morning by uh, what came before, what might come after, the things that concern us, that weigh on our minds, and many, many of which are, are very important, some are not. But for these moments, I pray that you would help us to concentrate that we would hear from you and that you would minister to us. Even as we look at these great themes in uh, the book of Genesis that will continue to be great themes throughout the Bible. So we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we moved to Russia the second time, we, we lived in Russia for a year back in the 90s, as many of you recall, and then we were going to move to Russia in uh, we ended up going there in 2007, and uh, were there for three years. And in preparation for going, 
one of the things I thought would be a good idea would be to read a bunch of Russian literature in English, not in Russian, but um, the Russian, uh, Russian culture is a very uh, literature-based culture. They have a lot of very famous works, and, and, uh, and they don't tend to be short. They tend to be pretty significant. I was tempted to bring my copy of War and Peace just to show you, but, but it would have taken two hands to carry it. I didn't know where to put it when I was done with it, so it's about that thick, okay? Well, one of the books that I was reading in preparation, trying to understand the Russian mind and, and Russian culture and things like that, one of the books was by Dostoevsky, and it's, uh, it's called The Brothers uh, Karamazov. And um, it's a longer book, and it's pretty complicated, and, and, uh, but it's, it's one of their famous ones, and you've kind of got to read it if you want to be acquainted with uh, Russian culture in that way. And so I was dutifully wading through that book, and I was talking to a man. I ran into him at work, and, and he asked what I was reading, and I showed him, and, and he, he uh, himself was, um, I think he had been a literature major, and he was like, oh, Brothers K, that's a tough book. I, that's, uh, it's so steeped in Russian culture and, and in theology. He said, I, I, you know, if I were you, I would just put it down and go for something lighter. And uh, though I was tempted. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he was ready for my answer that, well, I, you know, I had lived in Russia. And I spoke some Russian, and so I had a, an intense interest in and, and some basis of understanding Russian culture to a certain degree. And I have particular interest in theology and, uh, and had just finished up, you know, graduate school. And so I wasn't too concerned about discussing theology. But it's important. I mean, he was right to observe that when you're reading a book that big or a book that complex or a book that important, you need to have a grasp of the themes of the book so that you can understand the direction of what's going on, the arguments that are being made and what's going on in the story. And that was certainly true uh, with that book. Well, we're in the book of Genesis, and we're just beginning. And, and so, no, I haven't skipped those chapters, and no, we're not going to finish Genesis in three weeks. I know some of you were doing the calculations and thinking that we're, we're almost there. We finished a series. But you would be wrong if you thought that. The reason for looking at Genesis chapter 12 is because we see these themes wrapped up in this section right here. Some really key themes that are going to be important for us in understanding the argument that Genesis is making, the direction that Genesis is going to go, the things that are really being emphasized and that are really important to uh, the author and therefore what ought to be important to us as we read through it. And likewise, this being the first book of the Bible, there's a, a tone being set that these themes are going to occur throughout the rest of the Bible. And so we need to have a little bit of a grasp on them. And so it's uh, to that end that we are looking at uh, these three themes, the promise of the land and the promise of offspring and the promise of blessing. And we want to use those, identifying them as themes that will be woven together throughout the course of Genesis that will help us understand the direction that, uh, that the author is intending to take us in Genesis, what he would have us understand. And so we want to look at each of these three in turn, and by pulling them apart and talking about first one and then this and then the next one, it gives the impression that they're not connected. But as we'll see as we go through it, they are, they are woven together through the whole storyline. The whole storyline will be uh, weaving these three together. And so the first one we want to talk about is this promised land. And the word land is sometimes translated in different ways, and I'll try and point out uh, where it's translated differently in these different verses. But we see it right there in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So even looking at this very key passage here in Genesis chapter 12, which is going to be important for our understanding of all manner of things, we see that land is at the heart of it. There's a promise of land. God calls Abram to go out of his homeland. So, okay, he's supposed to leave. Well, where is he going? Where is he headed? That means he needs a place to go. So when we think about land in the book of Genesis... There's an interesting pattern. There's, there are interesting things for us to pay attention to that uh, really, even all the way back in the creation narrative, in chapter 1, we see that land is a huge theme. If you could count the number of times land or earth, same word, it occurs in there, it's over and over and over again in that section. It's going to be a large topic of discussion, even as introduced by the early chapter, the very first chapter of Genesis, and, and it's going to remain a, a theme throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. And so we see that it starts early. And, and of course, Adam and Eve were, were placed into a land, weren't they? They were placed into a garden. And that was their home. That's where they were created and, and placed into. And the culmination there of chapter 1 is God's command to the first people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. So you've got an emphasis on that even in the very beginning, uh, uh, first chapter, the first, the end of that first chapter focuses on that. Well, well, then, you know, chapter two uh, is, is uh, doesn't talk about the land as much, but you get to chapter three and you get a, a really um, key issue going on. When the people sin, when Adam and Eve sin, what happens to them? They are banished from the land. They are kicked out of the garden. And of course, the curse happens and all of that, but uh, for our study of the land, you can see that they are kicked out of it. And then when sin spreads, as it always does, where does it spread to? It covers the entire earth, so much so that there must be a flood to destroy the land, to destroy the earth. And so you've got the flood going on. So you can see there's a close connection here with land going on. And after the flood, you know, as we think through Genesis, you've, you've read it before. And, and if you've not read it before, this is a great opportunity for you to read it. It'll take you a few hours. It might take you a little bit of dedicated work, but it's not that long. And it's a, it's a very uh, engaging and, and uh, informative story. It's very important and, and really sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. So, so don't be afraid to just start at chapter 1, verse 1 and start reading and uh, read through Genesis. And even if you have read it, it would be worth your time. Uh, in, in for the purposes of this study, for us to spend some extra time focusing on Genesis. But as we think through and, and we uh, think about the flood that happened, uh, and then after the flood, the, the new generations of people, they begin to gather in one place instead of scattering all around the land. They gather in the one place, Babel, and they're building the tower and all that. And so God comes down and he confuses their language for the purpose of spreading them back out to cover the earth, the land. So again... The emphasis on the land. And that brings us to chapter 12 and this promise where God calls Abram to leave his land and to go to another land that he's going to show him. Again, connected with the promises and the call and the land that he's going to take him to. And so when he gets to Canaan, God promises Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob over and over again that he's going to give them this place. He's going to give them this land, and it will be his, and it will belong to him and his offspring. And that's repeated over and over. 
Well, if you remember later on, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, is sold by his brothers and he goes into a foreign land, doesn't he? He leaves his homeland. He's forcibly removed from his homeland and goes into the foreign land in the land of Egypt. And so that, as we think about the story of Genesis and what's going on here, you can see land is an important theme. It's something that's coming up again and again, and there's blessing in the land, and it's connected with the land, and, and here you've got Joseph who has been removed from it and, and all of that. Why do they need a land? These people were being called out of a pagan land where pagan worship went on, a plurality of gods, a, a, a multitude of gods that these people worshipped, even if they worshipped one for themselves, yet they recognized there were gods all over the place. And, and here were people being called to worship the one true God which was radical, was unique. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to worship this God and you can worship your God and that's fine and, and my God is just like your God. No, this was, this was a recognition. There is one true God and we're going to worship him and not your false God. Well, that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing. And even when Abram gets to Canaan, it makes the statement there that, that uh, the Canaanites were in the land. And what, what did Abram do? He built an altar. He set up a church in a place where it was not a church, literally, but he set up a church in a place that was foreign and hostile to what he was going to be saying and hostile to him. The, the people of God needed a place to be where they would be safe and they could worship the one true God in peace and be at peace with him. And so one thing we need to have a grasp on as we're seeking to understand the book of Genesis is to understand that the people have been promised a land where they can safely worship their God. And that's going to be key to our story all the way through it. But there's a second key, there's a second theme that we need to pay attention to, and that is the promise of offspring or seed. Same word. We saw in verse 7 of chapter 12, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Says God to a man who is 75 years old and has no children. His wife is barren. They're both old. right? But here's the promise. Here's what's being said is that you will have offspring and I'm going to give this land to them. And so that raises the question, that raises the theme of, of, of seed. Or offspring. And I don't know how many times I read through the book of Genesis before I realized just how key this notion is of the seed, of the offspring, and the emphasis on that. Again, if we go all the way back to chapter 1 and think through the days of creation and the creation of the plants and the, and the vegetation and all that stuff with, with seed that would reproduce after its kind. Again and again and again. You've got an emphasis upon the seed that will reproduce after its kind. And then when man and woman are created, what's the command that's given to them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is to say, with your offspring. So now it's not just the plants that are multiplying and, and uh, uh, continuing after their kind, reproducing after their kind, but it's the humans who will do the same. And actually they're being commanded to do the same. And so we see this idea of seed is important. This idea of offspring is important. Well, think a couple chapter four, chapters forward and we get to chapter three, of course, which is where you have this, uh, the fall happen and, and the man and the woman and, and sin enters into this picture and the cursing comes as a result of their sin and, and, and it, it's, a, it's a terrible and tragic moment. But even in the midst of that tragic moment, there's a promise. 
The promise, the first giving of the gospel in Genesis 3 and verse 15. That promise is made that there will be one, a seed of the woman. An offspring of the woman who's, who's going to do battle and is going to crush the head of the serpent who brought temptation and sin into the garden in the first place. There's going to be a cosmic battle and the seed of the woman is going to crush the skull of the serpent. So the promise is given in the form of a seed, offspring. And what that does is that should, that should pique our interest that we should be paying attention to offspring. We should be ta- paying attention to seed and how that plays out in the book of Genesis. And so Noah comes along. The flood has happened. Noah comes along and uh, survives the flood. And, and what's the command given to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with your offspring. So they're still anticipating. They're still waiting. And so he says, Noah, you need to... Be fruitful and multiply. Emphasis again on offspring. Emphasis again on seed. Right? That's where the blessing is going to come. And in fact, God tells Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their seed will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens or as the sands of the seashore. Not a a small little tribe, not a small little group, which is about all Abraham could get his mind around, and and understandably so, but a massive multitude of, uncountable. That's going to be the offspring. That's going to be the seed. And through those offspring, God would bring His blessing to all the families of the earth. The promise of the offspring, the seed, should create in us a sense of expectation. Even back in 315, we should start uh, listening for and watching for in this book, who are the babies? Where are the babies? Have you thought about how many barren women there are in Genesis? Why is that such an emphasis? It's because they're anticipating a seed. They're anticipating the offspring, but they're they're not having children. And and it's a frustration, and it causes them concern, and it causes them angst, and it causes uh, all kinds of problems that they run into. But it it should generate in us a curiosity, a special attention to the seed in Genesis. The offspring... Those who are going to come despite the circumstances because God has promised that it will be the case. And not only is that true for you and me as we are the readers of this and we stand back and we have the perspective that we have. But it's key in their own understanding. Why was it so important for them to have children? Well, a lot of reasons for that. And one of those reasons is they were anticipating the seed of the woman who would finally do battle with the serpent. The one who introduced all of the problems into our world. The one through whom sin came to us. And so, they're anticipating. They're wanting to have the child. Maybe maybe they will be the ones that get to bear the seed of the woman. And so there's this anticipation. There's this expectation. They're looking for who this one is going to be. Who is going to come and crush the serpent's head. So the promise of the seed, beginning all the way back in 3.15, should make us watchful for the one who will be the Redeemer in Genesis. And again, I've said before, and this this should be not new to us, but there are themes that continue all the way through the Bible. And is that theme of a skull crusher, the theme of the one who's going to defeat the serpent, a theme that continues through the Bible? Of course. 
you get to Revelation and you read through it and, and uh, whatever you understand or don't understand about it, you see dragon. There's a dragon doing battle. Right? And there's this woman giving birth. You have the same thing continued all the way to the end. The themes of this serpent and him needing to be crushed and this seed of the woman who will do so. And so we're going to see that even as we go through Genesis. Well, now, you and I don't have to speak in vague terms. We, don't, we, we have more than just Genesis. We have the rest of the Bible. And, and you and I know this is talking about and pointing ultimately towards Jesus. The one who will crush the skull of that serpent, who will crush the enemy, who will defeat him on the cross. Even though it bruises his heel, even though it does, his, does terrible damage to him, yet it will be redemption for you and me and it will be crushing to the serpent. And so when you and I read this, we need to, we need to be thinking forward about how this is pointing us to Jesus and him as the fulfillment of this. That the problems that are uh, introduced in Genesis chapter 3, that sin that comes on the scene right there, that, by the way, affects you and me, doesn't it? We don't have to look all the way back to Genesis 3 to find sin. Just look at your week. Right? It still affects us. That sin that they fell into is the sin that we've been born into. And so, we, as we read through Genesis, ought to be looking for the one who will redeem us. And you and I know the truth. You and I know where it ends up. You and I know that it ultimately points at Jesus. That he's the one who comes on the scene. And he stands in the place of the first Adam. But whereas the first Adam gave in. And he, he gave in to temptation and he sinned. Yet the, the last Adam, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, faces temptation and obeys God in the midst of it. Resists that temptation and is obedient in his life, whereas the first Adam was disobedient. And so you and I, as we read through this, need to keep our eyes peeled for Jesus. Because that sin that they experienced, we experience. That warning about death coming if you eat of that fruit, you and I experience that. That's still the world we live in. And so we are looking for the one who is the solution. We are looking for the one who will come on the scene, who will, who will defeat that serpent at the expense of his own life. But of course, you and I know that God raised Jesus from the dead. That when he went to that cross, which was the place of the defeat for the enemy, the place of his greatest victory, there at the cross, that he was bearing in his body on the tree your sins and mine. That he was standing in our place, that he was taking the punishment that you and I deserve, that Adam deserved when Adam was told, in the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And we fell in him, and we deserve that same death. The wages of sin is death. And he took that guilt upon himself. He took that punishment upon himself. And it was punished fully in him. So that where Adam and you and I have disobeyed, yet Jesus obeys for us. and takes that penalty upon himself. We see that pictured all the way back in Genesis. And so, we need to keep our eyes peeled for that as we read through Genesis and then as we go through other Old Testament books that we preach through or read through or think about. 
They are directing us. They are pointing us to Christ. And so we see this uh, promised offspring, this promised seed. And the anticipation of the coming seed, both as, uh, as children enough to be as numerous as the sands of the sea, as the promises are given, as the, the stars of the heavens, to be uncountable. That numerous seed will produce a single seed, a single seed of the woman who will do battle and defeat the dragon. And so, as we read through this, uh, uh, my prayer is that we will see that more and more clearly and that our own faith in Jesus, who has done that battle, has won that battle, has crushed the skull of that serpent, that we will uh, see our faith in Him increase as we see this being God's intention from the very beginning and He's promised that it would be so all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And there's a final theme we want to look at and that is the theme of the promised blessing. Verses 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see in Genesis chapter 12 this theme of blessing. This isn't the first place we find it. And this isn't perhaps even the greatest place that we find it, though it's pointing to the greatest truth. But it's a theme that plays through Genesis all the way. And so as you and I are reading, and as we are studying through Genesis together, let's be listening for that blessing, them seeking the blessing, and where they find it, and how it's to be found, and God's promise of it. Well, thinking back again to creation, we can see that God blessed creation from the beginning. Again and again, he blessed them and commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. And when the seventh day came and he rested, he blessed the seventh day, didn't he? Consecrated it, he made it holy and he rested on that day. And so he blessed it. There's blessing that goes all the way back to the very beginning. And of course, after the flood, Noah and his sons are blessed and again, told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that blessing, even though there's been such sin on the earth that, that God wiped out all of, all of the earth by flood because of the evil of their sin, yet even after that, when the one family is saved, God blesses them and tells them also to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And particularly in this passage, we see a special significance in how God works in Abraham's life. God promised to bless Abraham and to make him a blessing. I'm sure Abraham was a great guy. I'm sure uh, that he, you know, he, he and his wife were exemplary people in all this. Though we read later on that actually they were idolaters at this time. Yet, God determined that he would bless Abraham and that he would make him a blessing to other people. And so the blessing is to be found in him, and, and not just in him, as if it resided in him, as if it ended in him. But through him, he would be a blessing to other people. God promised to bless those who are a blessing to Abraham and to curse those who are a curse to Abram. And so you have this unique embodiment, as it were, of blessing. In Abraham, 
that God is at work blessing him. And those who are rightly related to Abraham will receive that blessing. And those who dishonor Abraham will receive a cursing instead. And beyond that, God promised that through Abraham, blessing would go to all the ends of the earth. And as I like to say, all the way to Fallon, America. That through him, ultimately, that blessing would not just be for his day, would not just be for an ancient people in an ancient land, but it would be through him and ultimately for all the families of the earth that his blessing would go. Well, so that's got to begin with a seed, right? As we saw in Abram and Sarai, his wife, were barren. They were struggling to have a child. And God reassured him that he would bless Sarah in such a way that she would not just have a child, but become nations. Can you imagine if you're an older couple and you're struggling to have your first child and it's not going to happen unless God does something miraculous and and yet the promise is not just, oh, don't worry, one day you will have a child. The blessing from God is one day you will be nations. That's the blessing. That's the degree of the blessing that God gives to Abraham and to Sarah. And later when, when they have their first child together, Isaac, Remember what the Lord commands Abraham to do. Take that that child, the one that you prayed for, the one that's the miracle, the one that's the blessing, the one in whom resides the promise. Take him and go sacrifice him to me. Take him up on the mountain and offer him. What What a difficult thing. What a painful thing for Abraham to be called to do. And we're going to look at that in detail, of course, because we know what's going on. We know that there's something greater going on, that that, that God is at work. And, of course, it ends up that Abraham doesn't sacrifice his son, though he went through it as far as he could until the Lord stopped him. He was obedient all the way, trusting even that, that if God needed to, he could raise Isaac from the dead to restore him. So they have this child there. Uh, he's commanded to go and offer this child, but God recalls promises that he's made before to Abraham. He says, by myself I have sworn, this is in chapter 22, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessing that Abraham and, and, uh, Abraham and Sarah had uh, was located in that one child. And after this happens on Mount Moriah, and after he uh, agrees and goes through with, as far as he can, offering his son, that blessing It becomes clear to Abraham it's not just located in a son, but the blessing becomes greater and much more far-reaching that he will bless all the nations of the earth because of Abraham. And so we see blessing is a big thing in Abraham's life. It's a big thing in his son Isaac's life. And when you get to Jacob, Jacob comes on the scene and he really wanted to be blessed just like his father and just like his grandfather. I mean, you come from a long line of people that God had worked uniquely with in the history of all the world. And here, Jacob comes on the scene, and he's, he's a twin. 
Yeah, but he's the younger twin, right? Stinks to be him. He's just a few minutes late, you know. If he'd have been born a little bit earlier, things might have been different. That's probably how he was thinking. And so he really wanted that blessing. And, and we're going to see throughout Jacob's life, which is a giant chunk of Genesis, it's him clawing after, seeking after, demanding, struggling to gain that blessing. He wants that blessing from God. He wants that to be his own. And so when Isaac, Jacob's father, was nearing the end of his life and he wanted to bless Jacob's older twin, Esau, in an awful display of domestic dysfunction, you have mom suggesting, hey, let's steal that. I know how you can steal that blessing. And you know how all that goes and he ends up with that blessing. And so he, he will get the blessing by hook or by crook. That's Jacob. That's his character. And that's what he's like. And so uh, you see that playing out for him that he is struggling for. He is desirous to get the blessing of God and he will get it however he has to get it. It doesn't matter the tricks he needs to play. He's going to demand that blessing. And when Jacob is, uh, has been sent away very wisely by his father, been sent, sent away to, to Paddan Aram, he's coming back 20 years later and he's got this large family and he's wealthy now and he's returning, but he's coming back into the land where his brother lives, his big brother, the one he stole from. He comes back into his land and he's scared. And so he finds himself camping alone. All of his property and his family is in another place and he's out there by himself. And while he's out there camping alone, a mysterious man comes and wrestles with him. And Jacob realizes it's the Lord. And when he realizes it's the Lord, he's not going to let him go. He wants blessing from the Lord. And so he holds on and he clings to him and he seeks the blessing of the Lord. And of course, he ends up Receiving it, the, the Lord does bless him and it gives him a new and a better name. He's no longer known as Jacob, the heel grabber, the trickster. Instead, he's known as Israel, the one who has striven with God and man and has prevailed. That God has worked in Jacob's life. But, but let's not forget the theme, what he's looking for, what he's striving for, what he's really seeking after is the blessing of God. He was willing to lie to his father to steal it 20 years ago. And now he's got the Lord in his hands, as it were. And he clings. And he holds to him. And he ends up receiving that blessing. And while he's at it, he receives a new name. He receives a new character. He is a new man from this point. We begin to see a new life for Jacob. And by the end of this book, we see that Jacob and his family, they've, they've moved down to Egypt because of the famine in the land, and Joseph has been sent down, and he's the prime minister now of Egypt and all that stuff, and, and so they end up going down into Egypt, and it's a place of blessing, and Egypt is a blessing to them, and Pharaoh is a blessing to Joseph and Jacob and their family, and, and what does Jacob do? He blesses, twice he blesses Pharaoh, and so the promise was given Back in Genesis chapter 12, that, that you will be a blessing to other people. And those who bless you, I will bless. And here you have Egypt blessing this family. Blessing Jacob, Joseph, this whole family. And so in return, you have Jacob who turns to Pharaoh and blesses him. So you have a picture of that blessing that resides in this family now being spread to other people. So blessing is a big deal as 
as we look through the book of Genesis, that the promise made back all the way in chapter 12 is coming to fruition in, in some small way in the end of the book. But of course, you and I don't have to stop at the end of the book. We need to read and understand the book and how it fits together and what's being said here in Genesis. But we have the whole Bible. And we know that the blessing wasn't just meant to be words pronounced by Jacob to the Pharaoh. The ultimate blessing that goes to the ends of the earth, all the, all the families of the earth, is not the, the, a blessing like that one, though that's a small picture of it. You and I know the blessing is much greater. As we think back to the seed, we think back to the offspring, who's the seed of the woman is going to come onto the scene and is going to crush the head of the serpent. What's the reward for that? What's the result for that? Well, you and I know the rest of the story. That all those who have faith in Christ, all those who will look to that offering made by that seed of the woman and trust in Him, not seeking to make an offering of their own that's going to make it work, not seeking to acquire for themselves a righteousness of their own that's going to appease God in some way, but looking to the seed of the woman and what He has accomplished. For all of those who will look to Him, there is blessing. Joyous blessing. And the blessing that you and I receive is, is not just uh, you know, words spoken by a prophet. It's not just a safe place for us to live or something like that. The blessing that you and I receive is ultimately greater than that. The blessing that you and I receive is a restoration with more added on to the way things were in the beginning. Where we, instead of having enmity with God because of Adam and Eve and their sin and our sin, there is peace in that relationship between us and God. And we walk with God in peace because of Jesus. The enmity has been put away. The serpent has had his skull crushed. And you and I reap the benefits of that. That's the blessing. And so we dwell with him. We have peace with him because of Christ. That's what we have now. That's the blessing that you and I receive by faith in Christ. And so you and I don't look for a land for ourselves or a place to go or something like that. You and I know peace with God right here and right now. And it is ours because of the seed of the woman. The blessing that comes to us through Abraham's family, ultimately through the seed, Jesus himself, because of what he's done, you and I have peace with God. And so these great themes will help us to get a grip on how to understand Genesis and, and what's being communicated here. There's more to it than this, but you will see these themes occur again and again throughout the book. And so you and I need to not forget the rest of the story. When we're, when we're looking at this passage, when we're looking at uh, the, the, the text of Genesis, it's, it's tempting for us, and, and it wouldn't be a bad thing to spend a lot of time talking about you know, the, the fossil record and different uh, you know, scientific things and this and that, and all that stuff has its place. But Genesis is meant to point us to Jesus. Point us to the one who will restore relationship between fallen man because of the seed of the woman. And so as we're working through it and as we're reading through it, let's, we can think about those, uh, the fossil record and science and history and, and, and how all that goes on. I'm, I'm, 
But we, we must not forget Jesus in Genesis, which is the direction it points us. So I have a couple of doctrinal things that I want to comment on just, just at the conclusion. Things we learn even by this very brief study of these themes in Genesis. First of all, God keeps his promises. Even when it doesn't look like he could. When you've got Abraham getting older and older, and more to the point, his wife getting older and older. But God keeps his promises. And he still does. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you want to raise your hand sometime and say, it sure seems like you've left me and forsaken me. He keeps his promise. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. So the first thing, God keeps his promises. Second, God is sovereign over history and thus is able to keep his promises. It's not just that God has really good intentions, but things kind of got away from him sometimes, right? We would never say that. We would never make a statement like that. But practically in our lives, we can sometimes think that. You know, I'm so far into this thing that God is, you know, there's no way God can keep his promise, right? It's not as if he has good intentions, but a short arm. He has good intentions, he keeps his promises, and he has the power to do so. Nothing can stand in his way. And so, for some of you who are here this morning who may not know Christ, maybe, you, uh, maybe you've never trusted Christ, you've never thought of these things, you've never realized your own need for a Savior, you've never realized that your own sin has consequences that are eternal. And you think, well, but God can't save me, I'm too far gone. His arm is not too short. He promises he will save everyone who looks to him in faith. And that includes you, if you will but trust in him. So God is sovereign over history, and thus he's able to keep his promises. And thirdly, God is a gracious redeemer and has always been. All the way back in the beginning of the book, we see him beginning to work redemption making promises already of the seed of the woman who will come on the scene and bring redemption. And so our God is a redeeming God. And in, in Him we take great hope. Because I look at my life sometimes and I think, I'm sure in need of redemption. He is a redeeming God in Jesus. So those are the doctrinal things, a couple of practical things. We need to trust in this offspring that he has sent. That's where the book directs us. To look for. To look for this seed of the woman. Now, they're looking forward to the seed of the woman. They're anticipating. They're awaiting. And you and I look backwards at what has been accomplished. And we look to the seed of the woman who is Jesus. And we see what he has done. And so, practically, we need to put our faith in him. And trust in him. Even, even sometimes when we are... Uh, uh, in situation that is so bad that it would drag our eyes away from him. Remember to look back. Remember to look to the seed of the woman and not forget. And secondly, even when you can't see how God could possibly work in your situation to cause it to turn out for your good, which we have promised in Romans 8, 28, even when you can't see how that could possibly be, he still can and he still does. He promised that it would be so. He is able to do it. 
If you've read through Genesis, you've read through the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you've read through the rest of the Old Testament, you can see that things get pretty dark. I mean, think about even right before the flood came. Why did the flood come? Because everyone's thought, all of everyone's thoughts was always evil all the time. That's dark. That's dark. So the flood comes and you think that's dark. But he preserves a family. And through that family, he commands them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And through that family comes the seed of the woman. So I don't know your circumstance. Maybe you're facing uh, dark and painful things. I know that for those who have lost loved ones recently, it can be dark and painful. It can be very hard. And you wonder, how can God possibly do anything good in this? He can't. I don't know how. But his arm is not too short. And he says he will do it. So rest in him. You can rest in him. He has accomplished it. He will accomplish it. So look to him. So in conclusion, God made promises to his people that he would provide them offspring as numerous as the sand at the seashore. A place for those offspring to live securely at peace with their God. And thirdly, God's blessing to them. That he would be their God and they would be his people. What a promise. And what a blessing. And through them, this blessing goes to the whole world, even to you and to me, to all who believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's requirements to restore us to that fellowship with him. And so the promises given here are not just for that day. They are for that day, but they are not just for that day. They are for you and for me, and we see them fulfilled even in our lives. So as we go through Genesis and work through this, my desire is that it will increase our faith and actually Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so I'm encouraged and I take confidence that as we study even Genesis, this ancient book, that we will be directed in our focus, in our hearts, and in our faith to look to Christ and find in him our rest and our peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great book that we could uh, read and spend the rest of our lives pondering and, and that would be a good endeavor but only if we see Jesus in it. Father, my desire is that we would look at uh, this text and what you have for us in it, that we as a congregation would, would look to Genesis and we would see the promises made and how they are resolved and kept in Jesus. Father, we rejoice in, in the seed of the woman who has crushed the skull of the serpent, and we get to enjoy and revel in that blessing of being restored to peace with you. Father, I pray for each of us that even as we work through this book, our eyes would be lifted to you and we would trust you more as we hear more about you and more about your son, even in the book of Genesis. We ask for your blessing on each one here in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you want to come and pray with them. I would encourage you to do that. They love to uh, pray with you. Also, children, if you filled out the blast zone, uh, Mrs. Beheimer is going to be over here to talk to you about that. And uh, otherwise, God bless you all. And I have these words for us from Romans 15. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.